family, it is Black History Month. Um, so a uh, quick reminder that black history is not contained in the past. It is happening now. So, for example, Amanda Gorman will make history today by reading a poem before the Super Bowl. Uh, I don't know that poetry has ever been read before the Super Bowl. Maybe they're trying to, I don't know, they're trying to do some work on their image there. Maybe she'll convince them to pay reparations to Colin Kaepernick. I mean, that would be dope, right? Um, but anyway, Black History is happening now. Uh, at our house, as Black History Month kicked off, we, we happened to be watching uh, season one of Blackish as a family. Uh, kids are old enough to enjoy that together. I forgot how good season one is. It's excellent. And, and it's a beautiful you know, picture of black life that's not about black trauma. Right. Um, and it's really about some very contemporary identity struggles. And I even see, you know, Dre is from L.A. He grew up in L.A. where when Sabrina grew up. And so I think the kids can see a little bit of their mom trying to negotiate, you know, where she lives now and, and where she came from. And anyway, so Black History Month has been blessing us. Last night we took it another direction and we were able to watch the great debaters with the family. A little more intense. When we were done, I said, guys, what did you think of the movie? And Johnny said it was intense. And I said, uh, well, what was intense about it? And Nico goes, what wasn't intense about it, Dad? So intense, but, but really a fantastic film. It, is, uh, it was not less powerful rewatching it for me. Um, so I encourage all of us, folks, let's find age-appropriate ways uh, to take the opportunity that this month gives us to honor God's image in our black sisters and brothers. Amen? Amen. I hear you. I can hear you. Uh, well, black people, black people continue to make crucial contributions uh, to American life and Christian theology uh, as they have since either of those have been things. Um, so I'm beginning today with a quote from that great African-American philosopher and public intellectual, Dr. Cornell West, who tells us justice is what love looks like in public. That's a, that's a crucial quote from my life. Justice is what love looks like in public. Uh, in other words, says Dr. West, justice is an expression of love. Uh, it is an elaboration. It is an extension. It is a manifestation of love. Justice and love are not separate fields. They are intimately connected. Justice and love are intimately connected. And this intimate connection of love and justice is not just an abstract ideal. I would argue that it becomes very tangible or touchable when we express our love with our bodies. Now, this includes giving our bodies in service and sacrifice to our neighbors and the people God has placed in our lives. And this includes the way that we, with our bodies, express our sexuality. And as the church is, as, as the Holy Spirit is leading our church in transformation and health and justice, and we're going through these foundational disciplines, contemplative spirituality, racial reconciliation, self-examination, today we come to sexual wholeness. And I want to locate our discussion of sexual wholeness, which is really a conversation that we're just 
starting today, but family needs to be ongoing in the life of our church, okay? I'm not under the impression that anything that I might say today will be definitive for always and forever, okay? But I want to locate our discussion of sexual wholeness within the context of our mission to seek justice. Because the movement for justice needs a sexual practice that matches the mission. Sexuality and social justice are both indispensable aspects of human flourishing, and it is impossible to comprehensively treat one without treating the other. But folks, the pain of this topic and the sensitivity we feel around it, the trauma that some of us experience testifies uh, to the importance and to the power of our sexuality. Now, before I get too deep, I want to offer a definition of sexuality. I did this when I spoke about race and culture two weeks ago, because when we deal with sensitive issues, we tend to talk right past each other because we're not sharing a definition. We don't have a common narrative or understanding. So when I say sexuality, I am using theologian Deborah Hirsch's approach. She defines sexuality broadly as a longing to know and be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. Okay, so she's talking about a lot more than just what we call doing it, right? She says sexuality is a longing to know and be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. So genital sexual contact. It's my first time saying genital in church. I just thought it's, I know. Are we all still here? Okay, we didn't get struck by lightning. Okay, genital sexual contact is a powerful expression of just one aspect of that deeper, broader, understanding of a profound and universal human longing to know and to be known. So culturally, obviously, when we talk about sex, we're usually just referring to doing it, genital sexual contact. But that really misses the point. Misses the point that our sexuality is about a lot more than a physical act. That one specific physical act is just one expression of many of our longing to know and to be known by other human beings. And our sexuality is of profound importance to God because it is at the intersection of two things God cares passionately about. One, our identity. Two, our relationships. Those are of tremendous importance to God. And the very good news, the very good news about our sexuality is that God wants people of all genders, of all orientations, of all relationship statuses to experience a life-giving, joyful sexuality. And we will see that in today's text, which is a very short text, sex was like just, I had to do so much prep and disclaimers that I could only preach on two verses. I'm just going to preach on two verses today, Genesis 2, 24 and 25. But I'm excited to share about this because uh, what I have to say about this text today is not something that I've heard or read anywhere else. I'm sure I need to read more broadly, but I haven't found this yet. 
So either I'm screwing this up really bad, or God is at work here in a special way this morning, or maybe some combination of that. But I'm trusting that as I'm authentic with the text and with you, God will do something good. (sighs) Last thing before I read, uh, this is a text that um, has been misused to harm vulnerable people. It has been misused to uh, leverage uh, the privileged position and enforce a status quo that is not always just. So as we go into the word today, I want to remind us that scripture, including the book of Genesis, was written by the oppressed for the oppressed, that our God is a liberating and healing God. That is God's desire. Um, And just final disclaimer, um, I just want to own that in this conversation as a cisgender, heterosexual, married man, I occupy the top spot of privilege in this conversation. Uh, It's impossible for me not to. And when we have privilege and power of any kind, it is God's desire that we steward it gently and humbly. So pray for me that the Holy Spirit will help me to do that. Let's listen to the word of God. This is Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Good and holy creator, who created humankind in your image, male and female in your image, all people in your image, and created us, God, with these sexual longings that you call good because you created us good, this desire to know and be known. We, we come before you today of people who are hurting, There's a great deal of pain in our desire to know and be known. There is frustration and sadness and grief. There is anxiety and isolation that reaches all relationship statuses, all genders, all orientations, all experiences. And so we cry out, God, that you would do what you do, which is to touch our lives with the holy grace and mercy that is able to take what is painful and broken and make it beautiful and good. Oh, that you would do that with every part of our world, with every part of our lives and with our sexuality. Spirit of God, speak through the word of God to the people of God. And everyone said, Amen. What I've never heard anyone say But what I really believe is that Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25 is a strategy to dismantle patriarchy and to resist indigenous erasure. Genesis 2, 24 to 25 is a strategy to dismantle patriarchy and resist 
indigenous erasure. And when we read it without that context, it becomes a vehicle for all kinds of abuse. Some examples of that abuse include a patriarchy that legitimizes abuse and blames victims. Far too many examples of that physical abuse of human bodies and victims that are then shamed and told that it was somehow their fault because they did something wrong or something was wrong with them. There's a more subtle abuse of the word, a reading of the text that is fixated on the what, not the how. What, meaning, if we just get the right combination of genders and covenants, then our sexuality is pleasing to God, and side note, we're hashtag blessed. If there's anything I know about holiness, it's that how we do things often matters more than what we do. And why we do things can matter just as much as what we do. Arguments about what we are doing from both traditional and progressive theological points of view tend to miss the mark because of their fixation on what rather than how and why. Can we talk about purity culture? Raise your hand if we can talk about purity culture. Okay, a few of you, a couple of people are like, I have a question. I'll be honest, I haven't gotten involved too much in the purity wars Because we have a lot of other things to talk about. There are a lot of other ways to follow Jesus and some pressing issues. Um, But I'll tell you what I know. The 20th century saw an explosion of urbanization in the United States of America, which led to lots of new social ills and anxieties. And as Christians were confronted with the visible traumas of urban poverty, things like theft, hunger, sex trafficking, Substance abuse, homelessness, violence, two responses began to distinguish themselves from one another, and they became known as the social gospel and fundamentalism. Fundamentalism emphasized personal, individual spirituality, a right reading of the scriptures and the right beliefs in Jesus and moral behavior, whereas the social gospel uh, just placed an outward confidence in human ability to serve others and felt that the impetus of the gospel pushed them out towards acts of love and mercy towards those who were suffering. And even though they had similar roots, they began to drift farther and farther apart. Whereas the the fundamentalist movement began to say, you know what, the social gospel, you are not teaching enough about Jesus. You are not teaching enough about spiritual discipline. In fact, you're way too fixated on this present day. Okay, and then, you know, whereas the social gospel became the arm of what we know as now progressive Christianity, okay, and became more flexible in their doctrine and less stringent. Um, And then another thing happened in the middle of the century. The suburbs were created, okay, as black people, African-Americans began to move from the American South and began to move into the cities, white people began to leave the cities, White people began to leave the cities and they created these whites only suburb. And there in the suburb, as Christian people gathered for worship, when they opened this text, they were not going to talk about dismantling patriarchy. Because the way the suburb was set up, the mothers were supposed to stay at home while the husbands commuted into work and then brought money back. They were not going to talk about dismantling patriarchy. 
And they were not going to talk about recognizing indigenous people. That was not part of the program. And so the thing that would distinguish Christians then in an otherwise racially and economically and politically homogenous suburb that was created by, by all these other kinds of allegiances would be their sexuality. And because we abandoned so many aspects of discipleship to Jesus, we began to drill down with greater and greater intensity on our sexuality. And all of these intend to be filtered through the lens of Western individualism, also known as whiteness. And I would make the same critique of conservative and progressive theologies that they tend to be highly individualistic. But to all of these, I would say that this text is a strategy to dismantle patriarchy and resist indigenous erasure because our sexuality is part and parcel of human flourishing in community, which is why creator wants us to flourish sexually, which is why a flourishing sexuality is necessary to any pursuit of justice. Now, as you can imagine, the story in this passage is very old. It's mad old. We're not even sure how old it is. It's probably about a 4,000-year-old tribal tradition that was preserved orally and then written down somewhere between like 2,500 and 3,000 years ago. Now, what's going on in that window when uh, the Hebrew people are, are actually able to write the story down, they actually have enough resources to write the story down, is that they are also struggling with foreign invasions from outside empires. Um, so this text is written down and inspired by the Holy Spirit and, and authoritative for us, but it's written down in the shadow of multiple invasions by powerful foreign empires. Pastor Joel, what does this have to do with sex? Why are you giving us a war history? I'm glad you asked. Babylon affects how Genesis talks about sexuality because the Hebrew people would have been constantly exposed to and even immersed in Babylonian culture's ideas about sexuality. Some of our surviving scripts, our surviving texts of the book of Genesis may have been written down by Hebrews in captivity in Babylon. So they would have been raising their Hebrew family, doing their Jewish worship, while surrounded by Babylonian culture and Babylon's ideas of sexuality. See, sex in Babylonian culture had the net effect of increasing the power gap between rich and poor and setting vulnerable people in competition with each other. Powerful men bargained with each other for sexual partners, trafficking human beings like pawns in a chess game for their own prestige and appetites. And rather than leading to communal human flourishing, this ethos led to individual domination, to manipulation, to abuse, to widening the gap between rich and poor and setting vulnerable people in competition with each other. And I don't think it takes tremendous imagination to see the connection between that and today. So Genesis 2 
exists in contrast to that dominant Babylonian culture, showing us a sexuality that leads to human flourishing, a sexuality that becomes a practice of resistance in the face of oppressive systems that destroy human life, a sexuality that leads to human flourishing, looks in this passage, looks like surrendering our privilege, committing to solidarity with each other, and vulnerably accepting each other as we are. Surrendering our privilege, committing to solidarity with each other, and vulnerably accepting each other as we are. Three words that we need to know in this passage. One is ish, translated in verse 24 as man. It means male or man. The pronouns are he, him, and his. Another word is Isha, I-S-H-A-H, Isha, translates as woman. In verse 24 means uh, female, and the pronouns are she, hers, and hers, okay? Third, a uh, third word you should know is Adam, Adam. In verse 25, our translation says the man, and this is Adam, the one God creates. The beginning of chapter 2 breathes life in and uh, is the first human. Uh, our translation says the man. But the word is actually a gender neutral term. Literally means something like dirt person or earthling, if you dig sci-fi. Metaphorically, Adam is a gender neutral signifier for humanity. And in another Black History Month shout out, I'm indebted to the work of Anna Polly Murray, the first ever African-American woman ordained as an Episcopal priest in 1977. And she knows that Hadam, the dirt person or humanity, is an androgynous term. In her words, having the potentiality for both sexes. And knowing these definitions will help us understand the strategy of the Holy Spirit in this text why is it about surrendering privilege? Because it says a man leaves his father and mother. And what immediately stands out to me here is that a man leaves his father and mother. It would have been countercultural because in that dominant culture view of sexuality, the woman would leave her father and mother and be absorbed into the household of the man as part of the project of amassing and consolidating male power. The text here says the opposite. It is the man who leaves father and mother. It is the man who abandons the pursuit of power and his position, his participation in a system of male dominance. A few years back, I was doing some marriage prep with a Central American couple, and they were having conflict because he wanted them to live near his family. In fact, they already were living near his family, but she wanted them to live to live near her family. And she was saying, I want to move and be by my family. We read this text together. And she said, Acá dice que el hombre deja su familia. ¿Por qué tengo que yo dejar a la mía? It says here that the man leaves his family. Why do I have to leave my family? Yeah. Fast forward, they went to live with her family. They're much happier now. Okay. So, so it's about surrendering privilege including, in this case, folks, um, surrendering the privilege 
of multiple partners. In scripture, having multiple partners is always associated with male privilege and female marginality. The rest of Genesis, much of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, and, I, and I think even the, the testimony of the rest of the book, uh, argues that having multiple sexual partners is associated with incredible pain that destroys individuals, families, and communities. That when sexuality becomes something that a man is taking and trying to get more of, that that is incredibly damaging to the entire community, including himself. Now, I, I have to say, because most women in scripture are systemically marginal in a way that's difficult to imagine in 21st century Portland, and because I'm not a woman, I want to be very careful about what this might mean for women. But I know that for a privileged man like me, it means that sexuality is not a place where I am trying to get something from someone. It is a place where I give, where I surrender my power, where I reorganize my life in order to image God's desire for human flourishing. And so I invite the sisters in our community to ask for yourselves and among yourselves, what does it mean to surrender my privilege and reorganize my life in order to image God's desire for human flourishing? Sexuality that makes communities flourish is about surrendering our power. And it's about choosing solidarity. The scripture continues, the man clings to his wife and they become one flesh. Far from adding the woman as a trophy of his personal accomplishments, the man and woman actually become a new creature in their union. It's powerful. In a marriage covenant with an individual or in a relational covenant with a community, we can choose solidarity with one another. We can choose to commit to one another in a powerful, sacrificial way. That might be a spiritually with your church community, but it can be socially too, as in a group of people that God has called you to love. I think we're having some great conversations here about what does it mean to uh, pursue solidarity with vulnerable people. Honoring the holiness of this relationship by committing to a covenant, to covenant solidarity, creates something new. Uh, it happens in marriages. I mean, and I'll just, I'll just have to use the Summer family, as the example, uh, Sabrina and I are very different people. If you spend time with us, it's pretty obvious. But because of our covenant together, we've created something new. And the Portland Summers have their own unique identity. Our sons are so different from each other that folks are sometimes surprised that they are brothers. But check this out. They all had the same first grade teacher. And after she had taught all three of them in all of their different hair lengths and skin tones and personality traits. She said to me, uh, she said, they're all summers. They all think profoundly about the meaning of human life. Our covenant created something new. But it's not just about marriages. It's in communities and friendships. Uh, all, church, I'm going to use you as an example this time. In the process of planting this church, I've been embracing more and more that while most models of evangelical church leadership are for white achievers, I am a brown contemplative. So I'm 0 for 2. Now, this is what happened. 
as I've said yes to being a brown contemplative, saying, God, you've made me a brown contemplative, what's happened is that those of you in this church who have contemplative wiring and contemplative gifting, you've begun to express those values more and more. So much so that when my, my buddy, Pastor Stephen from Portland Cove came over here and preached, you know, we had a phone call afterwards and he goes, I see what you mean by that brown contemplative vibe. I can feel it. Our covenant created something new. And finally, our coven, our covenants make a loud statement about the value of a person. And this is where I will go in on, on sexual relationships a little bit because reserving sex for a covenant relationship makes a loud statement about the value of that human being. I know this, is, I know this isn't popular. I know that I, I might be making us uncomfortable right now, but if you don't want to confine sex to a covenant or if you haven't, I promise you, there is nothing you can do that would make God turn her loving face away from you. There is nothing you can do, and there's certainly no disagreement you and I can have that will make the Holy Spirit stop pursuing your flourishing and well-being. But I also just want to say uh, with no hesitation at all that every single face I am looking at on this Zoom screen is worth a lifelong commitment. You are worth a lifelong commitment. You are worth it. And I, I challenge us to value ourselves because we are worth it. In the name of Jesus who died and rose again, you are worth it. Finally, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Something interesting happens with the language here. In verse 24, it says, uh, the man, it says, a man, Ish, leaves his father and mother and clings to uh, a woman, Isha. So verse 25, so, so, so that's verse 24. Sorry, I'm getting tripped up here. Ish leaves his father and mother and clings to Isha. A man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. Then verse 25 says the man and his wife were both naked, but it says Adam, not Ish, not he, him, his, not the man, it says Adam, the gender neutral human being, all of humanity. Adam and Isha were both naked and were not ashamed. So Ish leaves his father and mother to cling to Isha, but it is Adam and Isha, not Ish and Isha, who are naked and unashamed. It is humanity in general and the woman in particular. Humanity in general and the woman in particular are naked and unashamed. There is a special concern to remove shame from the woman, the vulnerable party, the marginalized party, the oppressed party. Because in removing shame, which is a sense of unworthiness or a sense of not being good enough, in removing shame from the most vulnerable party, all of humanity is liberated. I'm going to say this again. I've, you've heard me say this before. When we lift from the bottom, the whole thing rises. And when we remove shame from the most vulnerable party, all of humanity is liberated. And that's what we're watching in this story. And, and so here you have this, this vision of these humans that are, that are naked and unashamed. I really can't imagine that, okay? 
but they express this vulnerable acceptance of each other in authentic self-disclosure, and we're called to do the same. So if we're married, that means we need to be honest with our spouse about where we are and what we're doing and our shortcomings. It means our spouse should, provided we're not in an abusive marriage, our spouse should have access to our online activity and awareness of where we are and what we're doing and uh, when we're not with them. And we should share a bank account. It's part of authenticity. But married or not, we need people in our lives who, who we are being honest with about our shortcomings, about where we are and what we're doing and what we're doing online. We all need that kind of authentic self-disclosure to flourish as human beings. We all need to be able to be honest if we want to be naked and unashamed because that kind of relational nakedness uh, is the only way to experience the kind of acceptance that we long for. Choosing the vulnerability of self-disclosing, but also of accepting each other. And keeping our commitments to each other and valuing the relationship for more than what we can get out of it. We make ourselves vulnerable and we accept one another. We can express that vulnerable acceptance through meaningful physical touch. We all need meaningful physical touch. So we need to honor that need in safe and appropriate ways. We don't repress it. This is a good, healthy need that God has given us. So find a good, healthy way to express it. And if you're married, the physical act we call making love is part of that. With all these other things about surrendering your privilege and, you know. But we choose vulnerable, vulnerable acceptance of each other's identities. What if, what if we chose vulnerable acceptance of each other's identity journeys? our questions, as well as our own. You know, one thing that I would say about both liberal and conservative parents is that we tend to respond anxiously to our children's questions about gender and identity and orientation. But I promise you this, the Spirit of God is anxious about nothing. So what if we responded non-anxiously to those questions? What if we assume that God held our children and as we had entrusted our children to God, we would discover that God has made all people good and in her image. What if we chose, what if we, the church, chose vulnerability as our Savior did instead of holding on to the power that we believe is our birthright? What if we responded to our longing to know and to be known, not by going after what we want, but by surrendering our privilege? What if instead of maintaining a safe distance and keeping our options open, we committed to covenant solidarity with the people God had placed in our lives? What if we chose to vulnerably disclose our true selves and accept one another? Maybe I don't have to say it. Maybe you can hear it. But what I'm talking about has never been embodied better than in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Who expressed his longing to know and to be known by us on physical and emotional, 
psychological and spiritual levels through surrender and solidarity and vulnerable, vulnerable acceptance. Who surrendered every privilege he had as the son of God and chose to live among us here on earth. Surrendering the privilege of being unharmed up to the point of surrendering his life on a cross. Who showed solidarity with us, who committed to us. Demonstrating that no division of power, no expression of sin, no trauma and no abuse can prevent him from offering himself to us in love. Who accepts us and calls us to come to him. 100% authentic, 100% who we are. Every gender, every orientation, every relationship status. Each one of us experiences a particular longing around our sexuality, a, a particular pain when it comes to our desire to know and to be known. But family, what we have in common is that we are invited to pour out that longing to the one who poured out himself so that we would experience the life-giving joy of knowing and being known. And with that, I will pray for us. Let's pray together. Holy God, who created the world and love and shared it with us that we might flourish. Lord Jesus, who you who surrendered your privilege, you who choose solidarity with us, you who vulnerably accept us. I want to thank you this morning for the good gift of our sexuality. And Holy Spirit, I want to pray that you would guide us that you would lead us, that you would form us on how we can be people who surrender our sexual longings to the way of Jesus and who can offer this deep longing to know and to be known to the one who knows us perfectly. Right now, God, we hold out our hearts before you. We hold out our hearts, the longing, the pain, the gratitude and the joy I want to thank you right now that you see us. Thank you that you know us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, come and meet us in the place of our longings. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.